All right, I'm Pastor Michael. We're doing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. So if you turn to page 4 in your bulletins, we're going to read John 13, 1 through 17. And I'll begin in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing You do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he, for he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of God. One of the um, curious features, um, interesting distinctives of the Gospel of John is the amount of time and space that is given to Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. Um, It's an enormous amount of space, chapter after chapter, so that starting in John chapter 13, the first part of which we read today, and then going on, stretching all the way to the end of chapter 17. So that's five whole chapters, right? Five out of 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, which is almost 25% of the entire book is devoted to this upper room scene and the Last Supper. No other Gospel comes even close to this. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each give only one chapter, actually less than that, half a chapter or a third of a chapter to the upper room. But John gives five chapters. Why is that? Why is the upper room so important to the Gospel of John? 
And the answer is that this is the last night that Jesus is going to spend with his disciples before he departs from them. He's very conscious. It is uppermost in his mind, these last precious hours. So this is the last night that he can provide instruction and guidance to his disciples. And therefore, everything he does, every word he speaks, is weighted with significance. And what does Jesus do on this final night? He washes his disciples' feet. It's a very famous, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. And I want you to know that there are layers and layers and layers of meaning here. There are infinite depths. And an entire lifetime would would not be enough to explore and get to the bottom of it. But today we're just going to, in many ways, scratch the surface. So here's my outline. I have only two points. It's a little bit lopsided. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in the first point. But my two points is, first, we're going to look at what we must do for others. Because Jesus says, I have set this example for you that, you that you should follow me, right? A servant is not greater than his master. So what we should do for others. And then secondly, what God has done for us. So what, we sh- what should we do for others? We should wash each other's feet. And then what has God done for us? Jesus washes our feet. So let's begin. We are to wash each other's feet. There are several details in this story that really make it powerful. And so let me set the scene. Um, Jesus and his disciples are gathered together in the upper room of some house, and they are preparing, they're getting, to, they're getting ready to eat the Passover meal. Actually, it's um, um, part of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's their last supper together. And it's an awkward moment, because everyone is wondering... Who is going to wash the feet? Nobody wanted to do it. The water and the basin are there, but everyone is edging away from it. Why was this task so unpleasant and undesirable? Well, you have to understand that in the ancient world, everyone walked around in open sandals. And they didn't walk on manicured sidewalks as we do, but they walked on dusty roads. And you have to remember that um, this is a pre-modern agricultural society. And therefore, there were animals just everywhere. Animals just walking around and, and congregating everywhere. Sheep and goats and wild dogs. And with animals, there are animal droppings. And particularly in cities, we know this from historical accounts, because of the density of cities, because of the lack of proper drainage, there were no sanitation crews, the streets of cities was absolutely filthy, disgusting. And you couldn't just walk around, you know, gingerly tiptoeing around with your sandals. It's just not feasible. So what do you do? You just let it happen to you, right? So that by the end of the day, your feet were absolutely disgusting. And therefore, washing the feet at the end of the day was considered to be an extremely demeaning, degrading task appropriate only for the lowliest of slaves. Now, as a special, special act of devotion, a disciple 
could wash the feet of his master, of his rabbi, but never the other way around. Never. So here's the scene. All the disciples, they're milling about, and they're wondering who is going to be stuck with this awful job. And Luke gives us a really interesting detail. In the Gospel of of Luke, it tells us that in the upper room, the disciples were arguing and bickering about who would sit at Jesus' right hand and at his left. Because you have to remember that the disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the rightful king of Israel. And when Jesus comes into his kingdom, that means his disciples, the inner circle, they're all going to become important officials in the administration. And so all the disciples are jockeying for position. And in that context, this question, who is going to wash the feet, took on this additional symbolic importance because it was answering, it was helping to answer the question, who was the least important disciple? Do you understand? Who was on the bottom of the totem pole? Who is disciple number 12 in the hierarchy? And then to everyone's horror, Jesus begins to take off his outer garment. The outer garment was the, this long, flowing robes, um, very distinguished. This is what the Middle Eastern men would wear in that culture. And Jesus strips down to his inner tunic. So what is the inner tunic? The inner tunic um, is a single piece of clothing, and it was basically a combination of boxer shorts and a white inner shirt, right? So it's not quite underwear. It's like a notch above underwear. So Jesus basically strips down to his, to his underwear, and then he wraps a towel around his waist. He pours water into the basin. He gets down on his knees. He adopts the posture of a servant, and he begins to wash one by one the feet of his disciples. And the disciples, they're watching this in stunned silence. Why does Jesus do this? Because it's shocking. It's unsettling. Notice that Peter, who is never afraid to speak his mind, when it gets to his turn, he objects vigorously. Because it's so undignified. It's so upsetting that his master should do this. And the answer is that Jesus was doing this to teach his disciples. And he was teaching them in this very vivid, dramatic way so that they never forgot it. They never forgot that night. He was teaching them to love, to love one another. Later on in the passage, in verses 34 and 35, this is really the key to understanding the foot washing. Jesus says this, listen. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
I want us to pause for a moment and reflect on this, the centrality of love in the Christian life. Again, this is Jesus' last night with his disciples. These are precious moments, fleeting moments, hours before he departs from them. And what does Jesus teach them? He teaches them to love. Because love is the defining characteristic of being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you belong to me, that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Because love is the greatest. It is the most essential. It is the most indispensable trait of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, we looked at this in the call to worship, he says, faith, hope, and love. These are all traits virtues of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Colossians 3.14, above all else, preeminent, paramount of everything that you do as a believer, above all else, put on love. Do you understand? Love is the defining mark It is the defining characteristic of being a Christian. And so Jesus gives us this parable of love. He washes his his disciples' feet. And I want to unpack this. And I want you to know there, there, there are many layers here. And I want you to know that I'm largely drawing on and adapting a sermon that I actually preached on this same passage two years ago. I'm using the outline. So if the outline sounds familiar, that's the reason why. But I want you to listen carefully, okay? And I want you to notice four things here. I'm going to make four sub-points to what this washing of the feet teaches us. And the first thing it teaches us is that love is washing. Love is washing someone. Love is not just tolerating someone. Love is not saying, oh, your feet are lovely. There's nothing wrong here. Everything is fine. But real love is washing because love seeks transformation. Love sees the flaws and the dirt and the grime, and then it rolls up its sleeves, and then it gets involved. And therefore, there is a kind of pushiness to love, a kind of intrusiveness. Because love doesn't just go along to get along. You know, the easiest thing to do is just to hang out with someone, have a good time, laugh, and then go home, and then you're done. Their life is not your problem. But love worries and frets. There is an anxiousness to love because love is not satisfied with the status quo, but love has a vision for someone's future self, what someone could be without the flaws and the sins, and then it fights to get there. And therefore, love is intense. Because depending on how dirty someone is, the washing can be quite painful. 
if there are infections, if the muck and the dirt go really deep, it's going to require vigorous scrubbing. And the person is going to cry out in pain. And they're going to get mad at you. And they're going to blame you. And sometimes they're going to say, get out of my life. And when you wash someone, it's going to splash back on you. You're going to get some dirt on you in the process. And so what does that mean? You're going to have to suffer with them. There is no way to love somebody without suffering. And therefore, love is agony. You cannot rest until your beloved is safe and whole. So that's the first thing. Love is washing. The second thing, love is washing feet. Again, in the ancient world, the feet was the most unattractive part of the body. It was the dirtiest. It was the grossest. It was the most shameful part of who you are. It was the part of you that you wanted to hide, that you didn't want anyone else to see. But love is gently taking hold of someone's feet, their gross feet, and saying, here, let me wash you. And therefore, this love is not based on attraction. It's not based on attraction. Love is not romance. It's not infatuation. Many years ago, Christina had a friend. And um, every time this friend started to date someone new, she would get very excited. She even had a word for it. She called it NRE, which stands for New Relationship Energy. Because there was this electricity and buzz. Because in the initial phases of dating, the guy would be wooing her, you know, and charming her, and he would be on his best behavior. And it was a very intoxicating feeling because everything is new, everything is sparkly. I think this is the way dating is for most of us. And then you get married. And everyone who has been married for some length of time knows those feelings don't last. Because the job interview is over. Congratulations. You have each gotten the the role you were so desperate for, Mr. and Mrs. And then what happens is you begin to notice, you begin to discover all of the flaws all of the selfishness, all of the problems that had been previously hidden away. And then this thought enters into your mind. I have made a terrible mistake. I have married somebody with serious mental health issues that was not disclosed during the dating. I want you to know, when you come to that place, the real work of marriage begins. Because now, now you can love your spouse, not as you imagined them to be, not as as they presented themselves during the job interview of dating, but now as they really are. This is what the Bible calls agape love. 
This is the word, uh, the Greek word that Jesus uses in John 13. It's the word agape. And agape love is divine love. It is how God loves us. And what distinguishes agape love from the natural loves. And the natural loves is, you know, love that you have for your family, for your kin, right? This is the love that you have for your nation, for your people, for your friends, for your crew. This includes erotic love. These are all natural loves. Everybody loves like this. It's not very hard to love in this way. And I want you to know that all of these natural loves, they are based on attraction and affinity. But agape love loves the unlovable and the unlovely. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, this is the love that you give to lepers and criminals and morons. This is the love that you give to the sulky and smug and sneering. This is the love that you give to people who you naturally despise, who you find loathsome. And therefore, this is a self-giving love. This is a love that doesn't ask, what can you do for me? What can I get out of this relationship? But this is a love that says, what can I do for you? This is a serving love. This is a self-emptying love that sees somebody in need and then with the resources that you have, fills up what is lacking in their life. So, love is washing. Love is washing feet. Love is washing the feet of your enemies. That's the third point. Do you notice something in the story? It doesn't say that Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples. And then when he got to Judas, he refused. He said, nope, I can't do it. It doesn't say that. Because, you see, Judas was in the room. His feet were washed. And notice the text repeatedly makes reference to Judas's betrayal. This is a very significant Important point, we're going to spend the entire sermon talking about Judas' betrayal. But when Jesus says, not all of you are clean, who is he talking about? He's talking about Judas. He knows, he knows what Judas is about to do. To betray him to the religious leaders and then give him up to the Romans to be tortured and crucified. He knows this. And yet Jesus kneels before Judas. And he washes Judas' feet. He washes Judas' feet. I want you to know that Jesus is showing us here a love that explodes all human categories. This is beyond any human love. And I also want you to know that this is a love that Jesus commands us not mandatory, he commands us to give to our mortal enemies. Listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
This is the way everybody loves. You hate the people who hate you, and you love your own. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is, he- who is in heaven. Now, I know that when we read a passage like that, it feels a little bit remote. It feels a little bit far away, you know, and it doesn't seem to really be relevant because for so many of us, so many of us in this room, we will say, you know, I don't really have enemies. We're not really comfortable with using that word enemy to describe anyone in our lives. We sort of reserve that word for times of war, right? Like the Nazis were our enemies. So let me make this word bring it down to earth and make it more accessible and more applicable to you. When the Bible says enemy, when the Bible says enemy, I want you to think about someone who has deeply wronged you. I want you to think about somebody who has betrayed your trust. Somebody who has sinned against you in a serious way. It can be a co-worker. It could be someone that you used to call a friend. It can be a family member. Everyone in this room can think of such a person. And immediately, we want to stop thinking about them because we can anticipate what is going to happen next. But for the moment, for the integrity of this exercise, I want to plead with you, hold that person in your mind. I know it's unpleasant. Think about that person. And then I want you to know that Jesus says, I want you to love that person. Not just be civil. Not just be polite when you are with them. And not merely withholding vengeance. But I want you to love them. I want you to actively seek their good. I want you to work in their favor. And if you're doing that right, everything inside of you will scream no. Because what about what they did to me? Am I just supposed to pretend that it didn't happen? Am I just supposed to act like Everything is okay. One of the most helpful books that I've ever read, certainly the most helpful book on this subject, is a book I read this past summer, and it really did a number on me. Um, It's a book called Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Fantastic book. Highly recommended for all Christians. And in the book, Ken Sandy says, loving your enemies does not mean that you allow them to continue to abuse you. Because that's not loving to them. And he says, loving your enemies does not mean necessarily that you release them from the consequences of their wrongdoing. Because letting them experience the consequences can be loving, the most loving thing, because it will allow them to grow and to learn from that experience. He says, instead, loving your enemy means that you forgive them. 
that you let go of your malice, that you let go of your desire for payback. And even if they should not apologize, even if they don't admit their wrongdoing, or they don't fully admit it, so they give you a kind of weaselly half-apology, but they're not really owning what they did, they're not acknowledging, they're not validating your experience of loss, your trauma, you can still love them. You don't need their cooperation. Now, if they haven't truly repented, it makes it quite difficult. Because first of all, there is no full reconciliation. Reconciliation requires mutuality. It requires a kind of a meeting of the minds, right? You have to both acknowledge your contribution to what happened, and then you have to make things right. There has to be a change. So if they haven't truly repented, it gets it gets quite tough because this loving of your enemies, this forgiving of them is not just a one-time deal, but you have to do it over and over and over again because they're not admitting what they did was wrong. And therefore, it is an act of constant intentionality so that at every moment you are choosing kindness over bitterness. You are choosing warmth over coldness. You are choosing charity over judgment. I want you to know that this is a robust love. This is not a limp, weak thing. It is very vigorous. It is incredibly effortful. Or you're not doing it right. So love is washing, love is washing feet, love is washing the feet of your enemies. Fourth point, love is washing the feet of one another. What does Jesus mean when he says, wash the feet of one another? He's talking about the church. So this is a love that holds the church together. When you read through the New Testament, one of the remarkable things is you notice how often the words unity, um, agreement, harmony comes up over and over again. So listen to, for example, Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Paul pleads, listen to this. He says, live in harmony with one another. Ephesians 4, 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, I appeal to you, brothers, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. And so many more verses like this. So why is that? Why does the Bible keep talking about unity and peace? And the answer is obvious. It's because the early church struggled with disunity, with this peace, right? They were constantly fighting amongst each other and quarreling amongst each other. One of my favorite examples of this, um, if you could use the word favorite to describe this scenario, but one of my favorite examples of this is in the epistle to the Philippians. So at the end of every one of Paul's letters, he closes with personal greetings to the people in the church, right? So he'll say, you know, send my love to so-and-so, you know, send my greetings to the household of so-and-so. And so he does the same thing in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, it's just 
his personal greetings. And at the very beginning of Philippians 4, this is what he says. Listen to this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Suntike to live in harmony in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, he's talking to the whole uh, Philippian church, I ask you also to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So what's going on here? You have these two godly women, Euodia Suntike. They work, Paul says, side by side with him for the work of the gospel. They were co-laborers of Paul. And then something happened. Paul doesn't say what it was, but the Philippian church no doubt knew what it was. Maybe it was some kind of disagreement that they had. Maybe they had sinned against one another. Maybe it was a series of these little irritants, misunderstandings that piled up over time until it reached a point where the friendship and the esteem and the affection that they once had for each other eroded and was now gone. And so you have these two women leaders in the church and they are no longer on speaking terms. And I find it remarkable that Paul, he inserts this personal plea in his epistle. He says, Euodia, Suntike, you are dear to my heart. I love you. I want you to be reconciled in the Lord. And then he brings in the rest of the church. He says, I want you to help these women. I think this is so practical. These two women, they were stuck in their conflict. They couldn't get out of it. So he says they need Christian friends in the church to come alongside of them, to advocate for them, to mediate for them. What does this tell us? It tells us that unity and peace in the church does not come naturally. It is never easy. It is always hard fought. Do you know why? Because the church is filled with sinners. And because of the intensity of Christian life, because in the church we're working side by side with each other for the work of the gospel, because we're involved in each other's life, we're all up in each other's business, we are going to sin against one another. It's only a matter of time. And we're going to have disagreements. Tempers are going to flare. People are going to say stupid, foolish things. And there's going to be a series of these incremental misunderstandings, rude words, misconstrued snubs, these little hurt feelings that pile up over time. And if we allow them to, if we leave them in disrepair and unaddressed, they will create this huge, ugly gash in the fellowship of the church. And they will destroy the unity and the peace of our church. One of my favorite verses is um, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, 
where Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Do you know what that means? It means that when you love someone, you have this enormous reservoir of goodwill towards them. And so when they do things that bother you, when they offend you, you give them the benefit of the doubt. You assume the best about their their motivations. You don't jump to any conclusions. And because you love them, you are able to absorb a multitude of sins that would otherwise break the relationship. I want you to know this is the only way that our church can endure and flourish. We need this kind of tenacious love, full of grit, full of grace. So those are the four points. This is the calling that Jesus gives to us to live a life of love. A life that is defined, characterized, through and through with love. So here's my question for you. Class, how are you doing? Is your life shot through from beginning to end with love? Would your coworkers say that about you? Would your spouse say that about you? I think that everyone in this room, and we feel it so deeply, everyone in this room knows that we fall far, far short of this standard. And it feels like this impossible life to live. So where do we find the strength to do this? And that leads me to my last point. We need to see Jesus washing us. I want you to know that there's a deeper drama going on in the foot washing. And we know this because of two clues. The first clue is in verse 6. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? He objects. He protests. And Jesus replies, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will. So what is this afterwards that he's talking about? He's talking about the cross. He says, after I die on the cross, you'll understand what I'm doing. The second clue, at the end of verse 8, Jesus says, if I, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. It's actually a very strong statement. The word share there is the Greek word meros, which means part or peace. Jesus is saying, you have no part in me. You do not belong to me. So why is that? Why is it so essential that Jesus washes his disciples? And the answer is that the washing of the feet is not just an example for us to imitate that we are to do unto others, but primarily and foundationally, it is a picture of what God has done for us. It is a picture of our salvation. It is a picture of our redemption. Because in the Bible, sin is not just evil things that you do, but sin is defilement. Sin makes you unclean. It is a stain upon your soul. And the Bible says all of us intuitively feel this stain. And all of our lives, we're trying to clean ourselves We're trying to self-sanitize, but it doesn't work. We are all like Lady Macbeth. 
If you know that um, play by Shakespeare, what happens in the story is that Lady Macbeth, she is part of this plot to kill King Duncan, the rightful king, to frame the murder to his attendants, and then it paves the way so that her husband, Macbeth, can rise to power and assume the throne. And then what happens is she accomplishes the deed, And it seems like she gets away with it. It seems like nobody knows what she did. But what happens in the play is that every night she wakes up. And every night that she wakes up, she looks down at her hands and she sees bloodstains. She sees the blood on her hands of King Duncan. And she compulsively rubs her hands as if she's trying to to wash them. And she says, out damn spot, Out, I say, but it doesn't work. She can't clean her hands. And what Shakespeare is saying is that this is a picture of the human condition. We are are all anxious in our guilt before God who sees everything that we do. And the Bible says nothing we do in this life can make us clean. Only the blood of Jesus Christ washes us clean. 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, listen, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the gospel. On the cross, Jesus took our place. He died the death that we should have died. And by His shed blood, all of our sins, all the record of our wrongdoing, all of our failure to live the life we should have been living, our failure to love, all of that is washed away so that in Christ we stand spotless and clean before a holy God. That's the gospel. And so this is the love of God. He looked upon our wretched condition that we were poor and needy sinners And then he saved us by his love. You see, it was his love. It was his love that sent his son to the cross. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And so now we understand that when Jesus says, I want you to love the unlovable, he was talking about you and I. Because from the cross... Jesus didn't swoon with love for us. He didn't, he didn't look down on us and say, oh, my heart is palpitating. I feel woozy with, with romance. No, I want you to understand, he saw us for who we are, unworthy sinners, but he laid down his life to make us clean. And now we understand when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's talking about you and I. You and I, we are enemies. We are rebels of the king of the universe. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And if you have experienced that love, the love of God that loves the unlovable, the love of God that loves even his enemies, to the extent that you have experienced it, you can begin to love others as God has loved you. Let's pray. Almighty God,
we acknowledge the high beauty of this calling, the rightness of this life. This is the way all human beings should live, a life of love. But we confess that we have fallen far, far short of this standard. And our love is such a miserly love. We only parcel it out oh so carefully to the people who love us back. To the people who we have natural affinity for and attraction to. So Lord, give us a supernatural love. Your love. A love that crosses boundaries. A love that overlooks sins and offense. And a love that fills up what is lacking in others. A gift love rather than a selfish, needy love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.